Good morning. We are in the midst of a series entitled One Word, and this morning the word we're looking at is holiness. You know, West Texas is known for some things. We are known for cowboys. We are known for brisket, for cactus, for tumbleweeds perhaps, definitely known for our wind. And one of the things that we are known for is our sunsets. And I don't know about you, but when I look upon the majesty of our sunsets, it always points me to the artist. And I think about the one who created and painted on this canvas these beautiful sunsets and all the colors that are involved. And you know, the sun is really a good metaphor for what we're talking about this morning with the holiness of God. The sun is 864,000 miles across, which means 109 planet Earths can fit across the sun. It's 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. As I'm sure you learned in an elementary science class, the Earth revolves around the sun making this star very unique. We could say that it is set apart, that it is distinct, that there's nothing else like it in our solar system. It provides light and energy and heat, all the things that help to sustain life here on earth. But if you get too close, it'll annihilate you. The closer you get to it, the more intense it gets. This unique and powerful object that provides so much life and light to this planet is extremely dangerous. Now think about the sun and its attributes in relation to God. Modern day Christians like to talk about the love of God. and We sing these hymns that drip with romanticism, and certainly that's not a bad thing. But I think sometimes we have an incomplete view of who God is. We, we have sermons that gush with the assurance of God's affection. And while that's fine as well, I think we're missing something in our description of God. Because we have to do something with those pieces of Scripture that present God as what we might call less than loving and compassionate. I mean, you think about it. He is called a consuming fire. He is called the judge of all the earth. The Lord of hosts, which is a phrase that means that God is poised for battle. In addition, Scripture often speaks about the dissimilarity between God and man. Think about how many times you see the phrase, God is not like man, that he should, and then fill in the blank. God is radically different from us. There is definitely a dissimilarity in our character. And we know this about God. We know that He's loving, and we emphasize that kind of God. We prefer that kind of God. But when God arrives on the scene in Scripture, people cower and they tremble. They fall on their faces before Him. They run and they hide even. God is often presented as very dangerous. And He is to be feared. Remember Moses in the burning bush? God speaks to him, and, and, and Moses turns to see this bush that is on fire but not consumed. And God says, Moses, Moses. 
And he responds, here I am. And God says, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he goes on to say, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And what is Moses' response? Scripture says that he hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Remember the room where the Ark of the Covenant was stored? Remember, this room was called the Holy of Holies. There was a veil that separated this room from the rest of the tabernacle. And you remember that the high priest would go in and offer sacrifice. And he had to follow this, this, these meticulous preparations before he entered in. And you may or may not know that they also used to tie a rope around his ankle. So in case he messed up and was struck dead, they could pull him out without having to go in. Or remember Mount Sinai, where Moses received the Ten Commandments. What was the message to the Israelite people concerning their proximity to the mountain? If you look at Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 10, it reads, The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether beast or man, he shall not live. Then do you remember when Moses came down from the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments? His face was glowing, and it scared the Israelite people. After speaking to them, he covered his face. He put a veil over his face, but his face was glowing, and the people were terrified. Then consider what is written in Hebrews chapter 10. In the latter part of verse 30, and on into verse 31, it reads, The Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You know, we don't often think of God as dark and disturbing. God's not scary. God is, God is the man upstairs. He's like my grandpa. He's George Burns or Morgan Freeman. He's not the Terminator, right? Surely that's not how we perceive God. But if you were to describe God using only one word, what word would you choose? If I were to ask you, describe God, you can only use one word, what word would you choose? Probably loving or compassionate or merciful or powerful. All good descriptors for sure. But how many of us would choose frightening? How many of us would choose the word terrifying? You see, we don't like to think of God in those terms. We don't like to think of God as terrifying or, or scary. We like to think of the God who is loving and caring and merciful and all those things. But we don't commonly associate God with horror because God is gentle. He's kind. He's my homeboy, right? Many people have fashioned a God in their own image. God created man and ever since, man has been creating their own God. And you've heard me say it before, the biggest problem in the religious world is that we don't know God. We have lost our high view of God. Many times man starts with himself and reasons upward when he comes up with his concept of God. And we have to understand just how lofty and how above us God is. We have to understand this dissimilarity of character. 
that there is this gap between us and Him. A gap that's caused by sin, right? It's not so much spatial as it is moral. And we have to understand that this God is not a God that we can create in our own image that likes what we like and hates what we hate. You know, uh, we tend to create a God that, that uh, approves of my choices, a God that affirms who I am, who just pats me on the head and, and, and just wants to be my great cosmic therapist. He helps us to reach our full potential, but he doesn't judge us. He doesn't condemn us. He doesn't bother us. He simply stays out of the way and is there when we need him. There's a guy named Neil Donald Walsh who wrote a book called Conversations with God. And in this book, he says that he was not so much writing as he was just taking dictation from God. Wouldn't that be nice that God actually would tell you what he thinks on any and every issue? And Neil Donald Walsh recorded this dictation from God. And here's what he had to say. Here's one part of that, that story that he, that he writes. He says, this is God speaking. Your will for you is God's will for you. You are living your life the way you are living your life, and I have no preference in the matter. This is the grand illusion in which you are engaged, that God cares one way or the other what you do. I do not care what you do. And that is hard for you to hear. Who would ever come up with a God or create a God who probes our innermost thoughts, who sees into the dark, deep recesses of our soul, who demands that we repent, who commands us to worship Him, who demands that we live a sacrificial life. Who would come up with that kind of God? If we're going to create a God, why would we create that kind of God, right? It's not exactly the God that we would prefer, but He is the God that we need to know because He is unique, He is powerful, He is the source of all life, He is loving and merciful and gracious, and He is dangerous. But above all else, He is holy. If we're going to use one word, and only one word to describe God, perhaps the best would be holy. Now, holy is one of those words that has lost its meaning or its meaning has become convoluted because of overuse and misuse. You know, we use holy as an expression of amazement. We say holy cow or holy moly, right? Or we use it as an expression for someone who is a little bit spiritually superior, we think, and we call them holier than thou. You may have heard the term Holy Joe, someone who's got their head in the clouds, who exudes religious sentimentality, but they lack common sense. And so it would seem that the word holy keeps bad company. But I believe that we have a hole in our definition of holiness, that we don't always understand what this word means or the whole concept of what it means. Because the correct usage and meaning of this word is perhaps the most important word in our Christian vocabulary. In the Hebrew, it's the word kadash. And it means set apart. It means distinct. In Isaiah 57 and verse 15, it reads, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is kadash, or holy. In the Greek, it's the word hagios, or, or the verb form is hagiazo. It's, it, it means hallow or sanctified. It, it refers to separation. Holiness encompasses many things, and there are many nuances to this word. It refers to purity and moral excellency, but above all else, it is the most accurate description of God. Holiness is a fuller expression of God than anything else. Whatever God is, He is holy above all else. Yes, He is loving, but it's a holy love. He is merciful, 
but it is a holy mercy. He is just, but it is a holy justice. He is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, but he is holy in all of these things. Holiness is the sum total attributes of God. His name, which signifies all of his attributes in conjunction, is holy. Of all the things that God is, at the center of his being, God is holy. Power is God's arm. Omniscience is his eye. Infinite is his duration. Mercy is his pity and action. Love is his dying, undying commitment to his fallen creation. But holiness is the beauty of them all. All of the attributes of God would lose their luster and their splendor if it weren't for the holiness that adorned them. Holiness is the rule of all of his actions. And as the psalmist so accurately put it, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. If you were to describe God using only one word, holy would be the best descriptor. But if you look at Psalm 99, the psalmist uses more than one word, but yet it is a beautiful description of God where we see holiness as a recurring theme. Starting in verse 1 of Psalm 99, it says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. Our Lord, O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord, our God. You see, the holiness of God is a reoccurring theme. And here again, we see that paradox, right? We see a loving God who also causes one to tremble. He is a forgiving God who is also an avenger of evil deeds. How do we reconcile a terrifying God with a merciful God? How do we reconcile the love of God with the wrath of God? And actually, that reconciliation is all a part of diving into the holiness of God. But it's not so much us needing to reconcile a holy God, and all of the other attributes that he contains. But rather, it's about us reconciling ourselves to a holy God. You see, if you've ever watched a television program and you've gotten immersed into that television program, I mean, you're on the edge of your seat, it's intense, you're highly involved, and you look over at the clock or you look at your watch and you realize... The show's almost over, and they're not anywhere close to wrapping this up. And you get this pit in your stomach, and you start realizing, I'm about to see those dreaded words, right? To be continued. You're going to have to wait a whole nother week to see the end of the episode, to, to know what happens, right? I hate that feeling. And some of Sometimes we do that when we, when we look to God and we look at the Bible and, and we're studying and, and, and we see those words in our mind to be continued and, and it's difficult for us. We want to know the answers. We want to know what's going on. So we go the next week and we sit down on our couch to watch the, the, the rest of the program 
to see it pick up where it left off, but they don't just dive right into it, do they? No, what they do is they show snippets from the week before so that we can all get caught up to speed. And that's what I want to do for just a few moments this morning, is catch us all up to speed. Here's the deal with the holiness of God. God is holy. And because God is holy, He cannot tolerate sin. A holy God must purge anything that is unholy from Him. A holy God must punish sin. Proverbs 3 and 32 states, For the devious are an abomination to the Lord, but He is intimate with the upright. A holy God has to punish sin. Because the very nature of God, the very holiness of God, means that anything that is wicked and evil must be purged from Him. Sin separates. And because God is holy and sinners are impure, there is this great chasm that exists between us and God. So, end of story, right? God is holy, we're not. Thankfully, no, that's not the end of the story. The words to be continued are what we see. And if we continue the story, we see that Jesus came to reconcile us to a holy God. It is through Jesus that sinners can be made holy. He is the perfect sacrifice that sinners so desperately need. And because our sin is against a holy God, we need a sacrifice of infinite value. It only makes sense that a holy God could bring about the sacrifice that we so desperately need. And that's what he did, and that's what we call the gospel, right? That God met his own requirements for us is the gospel. Because Jesus died the death that we should have died through faith, God will reconcile us to himself and present us as holy in his sight. When sinners have the atonement for their sins, they are now granted access into the holy of holies. That veil has been torn down. There's no longer any separation. And we get to come into the presence of a holy God without fear, without trembling. Notice Hebrews 10. Starting in verse 19, it says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Because of Jesus, because of the gospel, a holy God, the holy judge, can, can justify the wicked and not be an abomination to himself. The wrath of God is turned away. And the righteous judge who knows our heart, who knows every deep, dark secret that resides in the recesses of our soul, he knows the sinner and he can deem us as not guilty. The blood of Christ covers us. Everything you deserve, Jesus endured. That's good news. That's what we call the gospel. We find favor in the eyes of God and we find holiness in the process. If you go back to Exodus chapter 19 and you look starting in verse 2, it reads, When they set out uh, from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. 
God chose these people to be a holy nation. And among them, he chose the Levites to be doubly holy. He was setting them apart. And throughout the Old Testament, you see God commanding these people to eat certain things, to not eat certain things, to keep certain rules and regulations. It was all done so that he could consecrate them. So that he could set them apart. So that they would be distinct from the other nations. Remember what God did to the Egyptians. Remember the ten plagues. Remember the parting of the Red Sea. God was making a distinction between his people and the Egyptians. He was setting them apart. And in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 2, he tells Moses to tell the people this. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In other words, God says, I'm making a distinction between those who are my people and those who are not my people. Hopefully you see where we're going with this because you can turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 and beginning in verse 4 we read this. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you... But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God, and you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This should make sense with everything we've been talking about this year. You, as a New Testament Christian, are now God's chosen people. We are his chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. Anyone who wants to find salvation has to find it through Jesus Christ. Anyone who wants to enter into the most holy place has to do so with a mediator who is Jesus Christ. Washed in his blood. And now we are a part of the story. When we are immersed in the waters of baptism, when we contact the blood of Christ, now we become a part of the story. We are God's temple. We are his priests. We are his chosen people. We are his holy nation. We are set apart. We are consecrated. Just as God made a distinction between the Israelites and all other nations, God has made a distinction with us. Between us and the rest of the world. And Peter drives this point home. In 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 14 and following, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, it was written in Leviticus 19, 2, and Peter says it again, You shall be holy for I am holy. To be holy means to be shaped by God. It means that you are not shaped by culture, you're not shaped by the world around us, but you are shaped by by God's commands. Just as Israel was shaped by God's law, we are shaped by the gospel. We are shaped by grace. We are shaped by what is written in God's word. That is what sets us apart. We are holy as he is holy. 
And I want you to think about something with me this morning as we close. I want you to think about Genesis chapter 3. I want you to think about the fall of man. I want you to think about what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. And how one sin, just one, brought about all the ills in our world today. Just one sin brought separation for Adam and Eve. Just one sin brought spiritual death. Just one sin has brought World War I, World War II, the Holocaust, 9-11. Just one. Just one sin brought about tornadoes and tsunamis and earthquakes and all these natural disasters. Just one. Just one sin brought about AIDS and cancer and all the other disease that we see riddling our world. Just one sin. That's all it took. And yet, all of us here today, all of you sitting in this auditorium and me, all of us have committed thousands of sins, right? Think about that. Think of all the sins that have been committed by just us and not everyone else in the world. Think about Numbers chapter 15 where an anonymous man is caught picking up wood on the Sabbath, gathering wood on the Sabbath. And he is brought to Moses and Aaron and God speaks to Moses and says, kill him. Really? I mean, he's picking up sticks. Or think about Uzzah as the precious Ark of the Covenant is in danger of toppling to the ground. Uzzah, in what seems like a retaliation moment or just a reactionary moment, reaches up to steady the ark, and he's struck dead by God. Really? Seriously, God? Or think about Ananias and Sapphira, who lie about the offering they bring, and they're struck dead. That'll hurt church attendance, won't it? If people start dying during the offering, you're not going to have many come back, right? God, you struck them dead? I mean, was that necessary? And we think about this, and we read about this, and we say, these seem like rather benign offenses. I mean, if somebody lied to me, I don't want them struck dead. I may not like that. I may not like them, but I don't want them struck dead. I mean, if, if, if my children are disobedient, I don't want them stoned, like in the Old Testament. These seem like rather minor offenses, and yet God seems to overreact. But you know why it seems that way to us? Because we really have a hard time wrapping our minds around the gravity of sin and the gravity of the holiness of God. It's just something that we cannot fathom. Our outlook, our, our perception is not what it should be. When it comes to the holiness of God, when it comes to our sin against a holy God, we need to understand the greatness of the one that we have offended. We need to understand the greatness of our sin, the severity of our sin, and the greatness of the one that we have offended. You sin against one of these pews, you're not guilty. You sin against a brother or sister, you're guilty. You sin against God, a holy God, you are infinitely guilty, right? We have lost our high view of God. 
and we have become desensitized to sin. We have such a man-centered view of sin and, and, and even a simple, inadequate view of God. Sin is not seen as an offense against a holy God, a holy God that is terrifying and dangerous. So we cannot wrap our minds around a God who would strike somebody dead for picking up sticks. That just doesn't make sense to us. But as hard as it may be, we need to do our best to understand the severity of a holy God. Remember the prophet Isaiah, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, he finds himself in the throne room, in the presence of God. He knows he shouldn't be there. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's knees were knocking, because he was in the presence of God, and he knew he shouldn't have been there. My guess would be that Isaiah was more holy than I am. And yet he was afraid. He trembled because he was in the presence of God. And you know what we do? We say, well, I can't wait to go see God face to face because I'm going to finally ask him, why did you make mosquitoes? That is such a man-centered way of thinking. You're going to get into the presence of God and start asking questions? No, that's not going to happen. Because when we find ourselves in the presence of God, I think the only thing we're going to be able to do is not ask questions, not dance, but fall on our faces before him. And worship him. Giving him all thanks and praise. I believe when we come into the presence of a holy God, we'll have no other reaction but to crumble. And I think we need to do more of that right now before we ever get into his presence. We need to start today, if we don't already, crumbling in the presence of God, falling on our knees and on our faces before him daily, praising him, praying to him, and seeking to serve him. Understanding that we have a loving, gracious, merciful God that has allowed us to come into his presence we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be terrified. But we do have to understand. If you have a need this morning that we can help you with, if you need the prayers and support of this church family, maybe you're ready to start a daily walk with God and you're ready to put on Christ in baptism this morning. Maybe you're ready to start studying the Bible with someone that can help you discerning the scriptures and what you need to do as far as walking daily with God. We say it all the time, but there's no reason to leave here this morning without being right with God. We serve an awesome God, a holy God, and I would encourage you to be holy as he is holy. Come now as we stand and as we sing.